0: Let's turn now to the first part we read in uh, 2 Corinthians, (laughs) excuse me, chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Especially these words at the end of verse 20. Be ye reconciled to God. Now, there are a thousand and one ways, friends, by which we can define religion, theology, holy writings, spirituality, and that type of thing. Now, does that mean that there are a thousand and one ways to God? Is it possible for Jews, Muslims, Buddhists? Hindus and such-like people, to be reconciled to God? Well, the strange answer to that question is, yes, of course it's possible. But only if every other belief is abandoned, religious belief that is, of course, and Christianity is recognized as the only valid religion on the face of this earth but even then it's only possible you see reconciliation my friends is through believing in the crucified Christ of God there is no other way that boys and girls and men and women can be reconciled to God The only possible escape from God's wrath in this life, the only possible way to be reconciled, is to come to that cross of Calvary and to see your own name engraven, as we were thinking about in the morning very briefly, in those nail-pierced hands of the Saviour. Verse in: all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Not by Buddha, not by any religious guru or leader, by Jesus Christ. So no other religion, no other religious message, no other religious guru can have any locus in this. It is totally exclusive. And that's why Jesus declared of himself in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. My friends, in this most ecumenical of ages, Let's be bold in inserting this. Let's not be afraid nor ashamed to insert this into the conversation. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the means to be reconciled to God. And we should not betray our Savior by allowing his glory to be shared with any other. You remember how God blatantly insisted on this to Israel. My glory I will not give to another. Meanwhile, we're going to explore with God's help here this evening how boys and girls and men and women can be reconciled to God. And we don't want to go by theories or assumptions or the views of even great men. We would wish for the pure and adulterated truth of God to lead us and to guide us in this matter. And we shouldn't trust our soul's welfare to any less than that. Let's look first of all then, with God's help, at why we need this reconciliation. Be ye reconciled to God. Now, there's attention, I believe, in the teaching of the Bible on the subjects of God, humanity, and sin. I mean by that, we're told in the Bible that God is everywhere. There's nowhere a God is absent. He's everywhere. Psalm 139 reminds us. It's impossible to escape him, even in hell. He's everywhere. At the same time, despite the reality of God's presence everywhere, men and women and boys and girls are still separated from God. They're still strangers to grace and to God. Isaiah chapter 59. Your iniquities or your sins have separated you from God. Now, if you're not a born again Christian here this evening, old or young, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are separated from God. In other words, sin has created a gulf between humanity and God. Now, the first evidence of this gulf. In human experience, appeared in the Garden of Eden, where we read of Adam and Eve after they sinned, that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Now, that pattern which they established in Eden, the pattern of departing from God, the pattern of hiding from the truth claims of God. Is an unchanging pattern throughout human history. Boys and girls and men and women are doing this constantly, hiding from God, hiding from his truth claims. And you'll notice from that narrative we have in Genesis chapter 3, which I no doubt you are quite familiar with, it wasn't merely from God's presence that they were hiding. They were hiding from his voice, his word. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. So they were hiding from the world as much as from God himself. And that's why, my friends, the Bible is so hated today in our world. Humanity is again hiding not only from god but from the word of god so ever since the garden of eden Jew and gentile has been fleeing from the presence of god and from his word so the gulf created in the garden of eden robs humanity both of the presence and of the word of god and that's why True Christianity, must promote the reality of man's sinful condition, but at the same time, the relevance of God's truth, especially when it comes to teaching the gospel story. Now, there's no room in this equation for any other God, for any other religion, for any other religious writing. There's no room here for it. It has to be Christianity and the gospel in a purest form. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Now, friends, multitudes of people throughout this world, especially throughout the Western world, they attend the Christian church every Sabbath, at least once a day. Sometimes, as the case in our own communities, twice a day. And they attend, you now, I'm not talking here about committed, born-again Christians. I'm talking about the people who generally come to church. And they come to church because deep down they realize, and some of you here this evening, you fit into this category. You realize that something is not right between you and God. So you come to church. And many of you also suspect, and many throughout the world also suspect, that the fix for this isn't found anywhere else. It's not found in the writings. Of the Muslims or the Buddhists or the Hindus or anywhere else. You suspect that the fix is here in the Word of God and in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, strangely, you don't need the Bible to be aware of the fact that you're a sinner. You don't need the Bible to teach you that. You don't even need the Bible to have a sense of lostness. The evidence of that is all around you. The evidence of that is within you. You know that there is something wrong between yourself and God if you're not a Christian here this evening. And you also suspect that here you will find the answer ...to that issue. And for that, my friends, the Bible is required. The Bible is required to show us how to be reconciled to God. We need to be taught in this subject. Paul, when he was writing that great letter to the Romans, he asked three questions... This is in Romans chapter 10. Three questions regarding Jesus Christ. How shall they call on him? How shall they believe in him? How shall they hear about him without a preacher? Who and what is a preacher? He is a man appointed by God to expound the word of God to tell the story of the gospel, to set the way of salvation before men and women and boys and girls. And that is the primary purpose of the Christian church on earth, that preachers should encourage and show and demonstrate to people, to worshippers, how to be reconciled. Well, let's look then, secondly, at God's remedy for this dilemma. Verse 21. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, the first part of that claim, he made him to be sin for us. This is one of the hardest parts of the Bible to understand, and I hasten to add, to explain. From Genesis to Revelation. This is next to the trinity in terms of explaining and understanding. Look at these words with me once again, the first part of verse 21. The first pronoun in that verse refers to God the Father. The second pronoun refers to God the Son. So, in effect, we're reading, God the Father made God the Son to be sin. Now, by any standard, my friends, that is a conundrum wrapped in a mystery, by any standard. And I don't pretend to understand it fully, but I will endeavor to explain it to some measure. Now, whatever this means, my friends, this is the very nub of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very nub of Christian theology. But it's also been a source of controversy for 2,000 years. So let's dismiss two interpretations, first of all, before we go any further. Number one, this does not claim That God the Father made God the Son a sinner. It says he made him to be sin. That's not the same as making him a sinner. That would be blasphemy. In other words, Jesus Christ, he remained what he always was, when he came into this world, when he was made sin, he remained what he always was, holy, harmless, undefiled, pure in thought, pure in word, pure in action. He wasn't made a sinner. The second thing we want to dismiss here is a suggestion that Paul meant here that Jesus was made a sin sacrifice. At the time of the Reformation, others suggested to that great reformer Martin Luther that this would be the safest interpretation of this difficult phrase, And Martin Luther thought about that and no doubt prayed over that, but he came back and he insisted, no, this is what it claims. This is what it has to remain. He was made sin. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Gaelic Bible, you will remember, perhaps, that the translators of the Gaelic Bible also thought that this would be the safest interpretation of this very difficult phrase. So, if you are familiar with the gallic bible you will remember that it says he was made a sin sacrifice now it is of course true that jesus was made a sin sacrifice coming at it from another perspective of course that's true the very essence of the gospel and that can't be denied is that jesus was sacrificed for the sins of his people the question is is that what Paul meant here now we can sympathize with that view and we can understand why some people insist upon it but nevertheless I believe that that view detracts from a crucial aspect of the role given to us Lord Jesus Christ as the sin bearer of his people let me try and explain so, if Jesus wasn't made a sinner, if Paul didn't mean a sin sacrifice, how should we understand this? Well, the first thing to notice here is our own involvement in it. He hath made him to be sin for us, for you, and for me, if we are believers here this evening. This was an essential part of his mission to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into friendship and communion and fellowship with God. And everything to do with that mission, my friend, applied from the moment that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Every second of his life on earth, was inseparable from sin. And during that time. God the Father viewed. His incarnate son. His son in human flesh. He viewed him in two ways. He saw him on the one hand. As his only eternally begotten son. And he saw him on the other hand. As his sin bearing Messiah. He saw both views simultaneously. And we witness this dual existence, if I can put it that way, of Jesus Christ in the gospel record. For example, we see the continuing intimacy between the Father and the Son in areas like the prayer life of Jesus. You cannot read John 17 and miss this point. The intimacy between the father and the son remained intact. Despite the fact that he was made sin. And We see it again in the declarations. Jesus, the father made twice, at least twice. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. Despite the fact that he was made sin. I am still well pleased with him. At the same time. We also witness the consequences of the son being made certain. For example, the father ordained that his son must bear the physical emblems of sinnership on his body, the physical emblems of sinnership on his body. The first was applied to him when he was only eight days old, when he was circumcised in the temple. The second was applied to him when John the Baptist baptized him at the River Jordan. Now, these two rituals, circumcision and baptism, they were specifically designed by God for sinners. Now, though Jesus wasn't a sinner, nevertheless, he was ordained to bear those emblems on his body. Here's part of the reason, my friends, why gospel salvation should fascinate all of us. That God the Father should expose his son to all of this, and much more besides. That's staggering beyond belief, is it not? However, we could never be reconciled to God without this. Now I want to ask you a question, and this is a real question for those of you who aren't committed Christians here this evening. Is this the Jesus you see in the gospel story? Is this the Jesus you believe in? Is there significance to the fact that he was circumcised with a symbol of sin when he was only eight years old? Is it significant to you that he was baptized by a, with a sinner's baptism at the beginning of his public ministry? Does that mean anything to you? This is a Jesus that lived as an infant, as a child, as an adolescent, as an adult, bearing those physical emblems of your sin on his body. But the real glory and intrigue and mystery of all of this wasn't merely in the emblems of the sin that he bore, these were on his body. These were placed there by men, priest in terms of his circumcision, John the Baptist in terms of his baptism, whereas we also read in First Peter chapter 2, who his own self bare our sins In his own body on the tree. Notice that? In his own body on the tree. This wasn't done by men. This wasn't done by a priest. This wasn't done by a noted servant of God like John the Baptist. This was done by God. God the Father. God the Judge. People saw and witnessed Jesus being circumcised and Jesus being baptized. Whereas only God saw and witnessed him being made sin. No one else saw it. No one else understood it. This was invisible to the eyes of men. But this was to be his status. A life of sin bearing. So unseen by human eyes, God transferred, the word we use here sometimes is imputed, but perhaps more commonly understood, he transferred the sin, or properly speaking, the guilt of his people's sin, to as it were the head of Jesus, the sin bearer. Now, that's exactly how John the Baptist saw him after he was baptized. He sees him coming out of the wilderness. uh, Jesus bearing those two emblems, circumcision and baptism. And he sees him coming and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, listen to what comes next. Who taketh away, present tense, not future. It's not something he's going to do. He's taking it away now. Three years before he was crucified. John the Baptist was alluding there to the scapegoat. Remember how two animals were taken to the door of the temple on the day of atonement. One of these animals was sacrificed. The other one called the scapegoat was brought before the priest and the priest came with both his hands, placed them over the head of the scapegoat and confessed the sins of Israel. In other words, he transferred the guilt of Israel onto the scapegoat and the scapegoat was led away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Peter, I believe, was alluding to the same imagery. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. But he didn't carry our sins into a wilderness. He carried them into the ferocious forsakenness of God. And there in his own body, while hanging on the cross of Calvary, the world descended into an awful darkness. A darkness so dark you could feel it. And I hastened to add. A darkness matched only by the darkness that enveloped the very soul of the Son of God hanging on that cross. This was the culmination of being made sin. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. So unseen by human eyes. Understood only by himself and by the Father. He bore that sin every single moment of every single day. Through it all, the Father loved him. Through it all, the Spirit upheld him. But nevertheless, Jesus Christ was a man under sentence of death. He was born to die. He lived every day unknown to men. On death row. And at Calvary. That death sentence. Was carried out. Without mercy. Why? To reconcile. Boys and girls. And men and women. To a holy God. Peter added, by whose stripes you were healed? Which stripes? What's that referring to? Surely it cannot be the stripes imposed by wicked men. They had no part in this. They were the stripes God inflicted him with as a punishment of your sin and of mine. How do we know that? The Bible tells us so. Listen to this word, Messianic prophecy from the Old Testament, Lamentations one, verse twelve. It begins with this sentence with this question. Is now, As I quote this verse, think of Christ hanging on the cross of Calvary, being made sin for his people. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Do you not care what is happening here? Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see. Is there any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which God has inflicted me with in the day of his fierce anger? So, my friends, if you wish to be reconciled to God, here's where you must come. This is what you must believe. Let me move finally to the fruit of our reconciliation. Second part of verse 21, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What no one really noted during the life of our Lord, and I don't believe anybody did, perhaps not even his own mother, was the meticulous obedience by which he lived. Meticulous obedience to every demand of God's holy law. A perfect response every day as a child, as an adolescent, and eventually as a man. Now, he managed that not merely through his own native holiness that wouldn't have achieved the mission. This was part of his mission to reconcile us to God because he was offering God the obedience you couldn't give and I couldn't give. In other words, he lived a perfectly obedient life on our behalf. Remember his words in his last breath. It is finished. What was? The easy answer is well, the work of salvation. This, in particular, was finished. The offering of a perfect obedience on the behalf of sinners, the obedience we couldn't give. This is what Paul meant when he said he was obedient. Unto death, even the death of the cross. Some commentators, as some of you know, will insist that this is. He was obedient up to the point of death. I don't think that's what it means at all. He was obedient unto death. He was obedient in death itself. By doing so, he succeeded in two things. One, he secured a righteousness for believers. And if you're a believer here this evening, try and not lose sight of this. You're adorned with a righteousness that was compiled and perfected and attained for you in the midst of all of this darkness and trial, and suffering, and pain of the Son of God. And the second thing he achieved, he satisfied the demands of God's justice. And that's why Paul claims here that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, one of the greatest blessings in my life, my friends, one of the greatest blessings... I can repeat in over and over and over again, God will never condemn me. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's why. Some people call these events that took place at Calvary the great exchange. The great exchange. In ways that we can never fully understand, my friends. God took our sin and our guilt and he carried it as it were and placed them all. On the head of his beloved son. And then he took his perfect righteousness. And he robes each one of his children with that righteousness. He gifts it to each believer. He hath made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So to be a born again Christian. Is to believe that reality and live life accordingly. Now I wouldn't worry my friends. If you don't understand all of this. You never will. Not fully. Nobody can. There's mystery in all of this. But believe it, you must. Even if it's a belief that is no more than the testimony of that Chinese peasant who was confronted by a missionary who decided he would test him regarding his faith. And the Chinese peasant responded with these words. He die, me no die he die, me no die that's faith in its simplest form. He understood that our saviour died in his woman's stead, and because of that, God gifted him with everlasting life. He die, me no die. Now, perhaps, and I'll close with this, the most amazing aspect of all of this is God didn't have to do any of it. He didn't have to do any of it. He could have left us wallowing in our sin and suffering the consequences eternally. But he didn't. And that's why grace is so amazing. Basing grace so sweetly sound that saved a wretch like me. So not only is reconciliation possible between God and men and women and boys and girls, it is also the most encouraging and the most helpful message we have as we go into this new year of 2023. And in the despair of modern life, in the confusion and turmoil and hopelessness of modern living, here's something to lift your spirits. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. And furthermore, into the misery and gloom of this world, God sends every born-again Christian as a missionary with a message. Look at verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's dead, be reconciled to God. You couldn't share with your family and your friends and your neighbors, even with your enemies, any gift as precious as that message. So you're not only urging them to be reconciled with God. You can show them how they can be reconciled to God. That's the good message of the gospel, my friends. Share it as much as you possibly can in this new year opening up before us. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious and blessed God. We thank Thee for reconciliation. We thank Thee that we have not been left to the hopelessness of our sin. But God has reached into this world, even into the mass of humanity, and brought out a people for Himself, reconciled to Him through the finished work of Calvary. Credit praise, and blessing due to our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember us in mercy. Take us to our homes in safety. For his name's sake, amen.